Welcome to the Proctor podcast series presented by the Samuel Proctor Oral History Program at the University of Florida. Founded in 1967, SPOP is one of the largest oral history programs in the country with nearly 5,000 interviews. SPOP, one community, many voices. And he never shot any person, but the one thing he taught me, he said always, he says, if you ever pull your gun on anybody, use it. So, okay, I don't play. I really did not realize until after a while that they were actually the protection arm of the movement. I'm sure it started not just with some of the deacons of my father's church, the men in his church, but other community people in Ocala who said, well, you know, we're going to protect you. And they would come out at night, spend the entire night in shifts. You know, they took turns as who would be there. It was something real protective for the community. And like I said before, that's, that's the reason we organized to protect our youth and our community, and, and especially Dr. Payson and whatnot. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Safe Spaces. I'm your host, Ryan Morini. Today's episode is titled Friends with Weapons, the Ocala Hunting and Fishing Club. The stories of the Ocala Hunting and Fishing Club come out of interviews that Justin Donovan, Justin Hosby, and I conducted regarding the civil rights movement in Ocala, Florida, about an hour's drive south of Gainesville. Our initial contact was Miss Rosemary Florence, who was involved in the demonstrations as a teenager. When we first expressed interest in the project, she said, then you've got to talk to the Hunting and Fishing Club. No further explanation. Now, I wasn't going to argue, but I thought it'd be about deer and squirrels and stuff. When you're doing oral history, you just have to roll with things like this. One of the unique advantages of these interviews is that they give you the opportunity to learn unexpected stories that you would never have known to ask about. As it turned out, the Ocala Hunting and Fishing Club was a black armed defense organization intended to ensure the safety of nonviolent demonstrators and organizers in the civil rights movement. Other than a couple of newspaper articles from the Ocala Star Banner in the 1990s and later, the organization was barely documented at all before we did these interviews. The only mention we know of in the historical literature comes from the late Edward D. Davis, an Ocala educator and former Florida NAACP State Conference president who alluded to the hunting and fishing club simply by writing that, and I quote, leaders' homes were guarded by friends with weapons. The civil rights movement in the United States was never as resolutely nonviolent as mainstream accounts and whitewashed public school textbooks would have you believe. There were certainly national figures in the movement, such as Bayard Rustin and Reverend Ralph Abernathy, who adopted nonviolence as a total philosophy. But in many black communities throughout the South and the rest of the country, nonviolence was a tactic, and that nonviolent tactic sometimes depended on the readiness of others to use physical force to defend it something Robert F. Williams called armed self-reliance. In his book, This Nonviolent Stuff Will Get You Killed, movement veteran Charles Cobb observed, the use of guns for self-defense was not the opposite of nonviolence, as is commonly thought. Something more complicated but absolutely normal was at play. Even Martin Luther King Jr. was protected by armed community members in the early days of his activism, and it was a very deliberate decision on his part, at the urging of Bayard Rustin, 
to change that. Nonviolence was a strategy for the national stage, a demonstration for wider audiences, and it was likewise a tactic to keep the need for armed defense of those demonstrators backstage and out of public view. When that topic came up at a Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee staff meeting in June 1966, James Foreman stated, I think that's our business and that we don't have to talk about it. That sort of silence was an effective and probably very necessary short-term political strategy, but it also enabled a misperception that white Americans, liberal and conservative alike, have been using to try to control black activism ever since. You could see it in white reactions to Malcolm X in the 60s, and you can see it today in reactionary attempts to slander and silence Black Lives Matter activists as terrorists or promoters of violence against police. These commentators' arguments tend to lean on the romanticized argument that in the 1950s and 1960s, black protesters were completely nonviolent, and they commanded respect because of it. The reality was much more complicated. As this podcast aims to show, Nonviolence alone was not enough to ensure the success of the movement. Demonstrators and movement leaders quite literally risked life and limb, and at many times and in many places the risks were too great for them not to rely on the help of friends with weapons. begin this story in 1963. Well, College students returning home to Ocala for the summer started a civil rights movement with the help of Reverend Frank Pinkston. Reverend Pinkston had been involved in sit-ins in the Richmond area in 1960 when he was attending Virginia Union University, and after his return to Florida, he had become a renowned public speaker. So, here comes this dynamic young preacher, Reverend Frank Pinkston. And I, also at the time, there were young people who were in college that had come home for the summer. And they too were involved with us. So it was just the right time for the youth movement here in Ocala to take off. Under Pinkston's leadership, Ocala College and high school students were drilled intensively in nonviolent tactics, and weekly mass meetings brought crowds out to Covenant Missionary Baptist Church to see honored guest speakers such as Ralph Abernathy and Jackie Robinson. Even when there was no guest speaker, the people came out in droves just to hear Reverend Pinkston speak. You couldn't tell where the choir stand ended from the regular audience, literally, because everybody, people who sang and didn't sing, were in the choir stand, you know, all down the pulpit and everywhere. Yes, it was always overflow, always. And that was almost every Tuesday night. But it would take more than nonviolent training and camaraderie to keep everyone safe. Founding members Lucius Stevenson and Moses Menchin explained in that first interview that men in the community formed the hunting and fishing club because they understood the need to protect the participants in the movement. The reason we saw fit to organize something is because so many things would happen across the country to our people. 
and just wasn't justified, you know what I mean? And we decided we would try to protect our people, which was our young people here at the time, marching and going sitting in. And Dr. Paxton just got out of college and came back and started this thing on Kelly Bear County. And I will tell you the truth, and uh, I know this is going to record. Marion County ain't the best, it's not the best county in the world to live in, but it's my home, it's our home, <laughs> and we had to try. We're not bad, wasn't bad guys, we never have been bad guys, but we wanted to protect our people from the bad guys. A lot of bad guys around here still is. So we organized the Hunting and Fishing Club. This church right here, the old church was sitting right in the same spot. It was old wood constructed church, the world, you know, built out of wood timber sitting up on block, concrete blocks, right, Brother Major? Oh, concrete, yeah. Mm -hmm. On concrete blocks. It had, I think it had slide up and down windows, didn't it? Uh, stretch out windows. Stretch out windows. Open, run, old type windows open from the side and all that kind of stuff. So it wouldn't have been much to put a few sticks of dynamite on it and blow it up. Mm -hmm. But we was getting stretched that it was, the bad people going to come in and blow it up because they're having mass meetings here. The youth was marching up and down the street, sitting in and whatnot. Dr. Pinkley had organized them, and they wasn't afraid. They was arresting them and putting them in jail, parents going down, getting them out. And then they would start threatening about blowing the church up and doing something to our people and whatnot. So, oh, that woman church out on a hill. A few of us, just a few of us, we organized right at our house, right at my house at that time. Little garage I had built back there and we organized right in that garage. It was about, how many of us, five of us? About five or six. Wasn't over half a dozen at that time. But we organized and we came and watched over the church and when the youth council would come in from marching and all that kind of stuff in the afternoon, they'd have the mass meetings and yeah, uh, that's when we would come on mass meeting night because we figured that's when the guy, bad guys want to do their damage. Mm -hmm. And we watched over. We, we didn't come in. We mostly stayed outside around the church, you know, to make sure that nobody come in undermines, you know. At that time, Silver Spring wasn't near as populated as they are now. So they was kind of in an isolated area out there, you know. They could easily get to them, you know. Mm -hmm. Right across in front of the house was nothing but forest like woods. But we'd go out there, that's where we would stay at night, over in the wooded part of the house where they would have to come up on that road and whatnot, you know. And we'd stay out there the next morning. We'd leave our weapons at their house, walk back down in our vehicles and whatnot, get in our vehicles, come on home, go to work. Next night, we did it night after night sometimes. But not, you know, just regular every night. But something like, in the heat of the battle, we were doing it every night. May Stafford's father, Orion McCants, was also in the hunting and fishing club. He advised her to stay out of the civil rights movement for her own safety. And although he himself avoided any form of breaking the law, even if it was civil disobedience, he was unwavering in his decision to participate in the club. His concern was that nobody hurt Frank. And that's the only concern. If anybody went there to say set the house on fire or do something like that, he was gonna be willing to stop him because he wanted Frank to live. As far as going and, you know, seeking somebody out to do anything, 
he was not into that. And, and that's what the hunting and fishing group was all about, the way I understood it. They were there to protect Frank and his family. That was, that was it. If anything moved that wasn't supposed to be moving, they had it covered. <laughs> These threats of anti-black violence were hardly new to Marion County. To put Mr. Stevenson's comments about bad guys in context, consider that Florida had the highest per capita lynching rate of the entire United States from the 1880s through the 1940s. And the Equal Justice Initiative found 30 recorded lynchings in Marion County alone between 1877 and 1950, which was the eighth highest out of all counties in the U.S. South in that time period. In 1926, Ocala even featured the first known lynching to be held live over the radio when a white mob tortured and murdered Nick Williams across from a broadcasting station. There are at least two important aspects of this violence that we should emphasize here. First, that lynching was a terroristic act designed to keep the rest of the black community, and any would-be white allies, fearful and passive. And second, that this violence was implicitly condoned when not openly supported by the white power structure, not only in Ocala, not only in Florida, but throughout the South. In other words, the visible acts of violence were just the crystallization of ever-present visible and invisible threats and law enforcement could not be expected to protect the black community effectively because they were part of that power structure and enforced its threats. It often fell upon black communities to protect their own. One might argue that there were really no safe spaces for black people in Ocala or elsewhere in Florida, but to any relative extent that there were, they were created, maintained, and defended by the people themselves. Mary Carolyn Williams was a teenager when she became involved in the demonstrations, so it was only upon later reflection that she came to understand all of this in deeper context. And see, all of this was going on after those four little girls were, were killed in Birmingham. I am not thinking about what this is then, but as I matured, I understood how significant they were, because they were actually the protection arm of our movement, because we had no one but ourselves. And so <clears throat> I'm just grateful. The Hunting and Fishing Club was founded for exactly that reason, to prevent white terrorists from enacting violence on demonstrators, basically self-defense on a community level. But while white men throughout the South were expected to bear arms in defense of their families and their homes, Black men with guns were portrayed as threatening or as potential criminals, a double standard that continues to prevail today. That's why they chose the name. Well, well, here's what it is. We didn't come official until later on in the year of this Hood Hunt Fishing Club. We just, we just named a clip, something off the top of our head that, that uh, we, you know, we would have to, uh, to 
take the code or whatever we had to go to code, we could say, yeah, we the fishing club. We we, we got this announcement fishing club, and we should have some records somewhere. Because know. most of the men in the community did hunt mm-hmm. yeah. and did fish. Yes. Because we only had a few paved roads in a whole lot of wooded areas. That's right. The naming of the organization was a clever tactic to ensure the members' right to bear arms, and its significance was not lost on the white community, as we can see from this story of an encounter with a local white politician. And, and they knew, they knew over there we'd organized, that during that time, Buddy McKay was running for an office. We was having a function for raising money for Buddy McKay to go to Tallahassee. And uh, he came to me, he said, y'all see, I heard y'all got a fishing, a hunting and fishing club. Saying, you the president. I said, yes, I am. He said, can I join your club? I said, yes. But he was just joking, you know. But he did come and ask me that. So they knew what was going on. And that kind of kept them back because they knew that well, we had shotguns and buckshots. And we was going to sure use them if we had to. Okay? Besides police repression, one of the biggest threats to the hunting and fishing club could have come from employers. We've recorded stories in Ocala that are similar to other stories throughout the South, in which white employers threatened black workers with the loss of their jobs if they participated in or supported civil rights demonstrations. But the founding members of the hunting and fishing club were not as vulnerable as some other workers, and they knew it. We weren't afraid, and then another thing, we wake up next morning, go to our job, and they were going to say, you fired, you fired. We were working for Swift and Co. at that time, and we was, we, we was professional butchers. Now, I'm telling you, we, they couldn't just pick up anybody up off the street and do our jobs. And we wasn't afraid, you know, to stick our necks out and, 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 and call a spade a spade. Let's put it that way. Okay. Did anybody at work ever give you any? No, they never did challenge us on that, did they, Mom? No. No, sir. They never did challenge, challenge us on that. And they knew what was happening. Bear in mind the serious devotion that all of this entails. These are grown men with families and full-time jobs who are doing this entirely on a volunteer basis just to protect their pastor and the children of the community. They'd work a full shift at their jobs and then take another full shift standing guard at the Pinkston home or at Covenant Church. To alleviate the burden on the men's families, Juanita Cunningham and other women in the community stepped up to support them. A lot of us women would cook food for them because they had to eat. I did a lot of cooking. Mm-hmm. Because they would be out there all night. <laughs> this all-night activity was extremely well organized. The hunting and fishing club dug foxholes, strung up tripwire alarms in the woods, and rigged up floodlight systems outside the Pinkston family home and at Covenant. Moses mentioned described these systems to us at that first meeting. Church just to sit up about four feet high. Mm-hmm. And right. Every weekend, we we work on those lights, you know, floodlights ready. Mm-hmm. So if anybody would go up on the week, we, we could see them. Mm-hmm. It, it really we had a group yeah. putting those lights on there. Well, I was one of the mm-hmm. guys who both put this on. This is our church. Yeah. This is our headquarters. We had to protect it. We had those lights all over. old old church, wooden, wooden church. You one blow. But we had all fixed oh, up. Yeah. But all on four points of the house, all four points. We had about 50, 50, about 50 or 60 feet of cords. Mm-hmm. We could mash a button and light 
of all parts of the woods would be lit up. Mash if anybody couldn't come out of the beams of light, they they get in danger. We had already done. Uh, even every night when we if we was within suspicious of anything, we just and uh you couldn't move out, you couldn't even move your feet unless you knew the password. You'd be in danger if you if you didn't know the password. If you moved, you had to holler, what? What? If you move anywhere in that area, you had to holler out the, the, the password. <coughs> and so we had we had our own foxhole to get get foxhole to relieve them. We really had all rigged up. The hunting and fishing club also escorted people to and from the Marion County line, particularly any of the guest speakers at mass meetings, and the University of Florida students and faculty who periodically came down from Alachua County to participate in meetings and demonstrations. And the hunting and fishing club were responsible for making sure that they got into town safely and that they got out of town safely. Am I not right? That's true. They would escort people to the county line many days. I remember That's the true. students from Gainesville um, talked about um, you know feeling safe because they would be escorted mm -hmm. around yep. in and out, safe passage uh, at that time. Dan Harmeling was one of those students from Gainesville. Because the organization didn't advertise its name or business, he remembered it as the NAACP. When the meetings, the mass meetings would end at night, then the NAACP, the men, formed an armed guard for us and would follow us with their guns until we got to the Alachua County, Marion County line. To really understand the importance of the hunting and fishing club, you need to understand how regimented and well-organized the Ocala movement was overall. Demonstrators had to follow strict protocol even in dangerous or stressful situations, and they were watched over by women who served as observers. When I'm listening to people, they say, oh, we could just come on and let's figure, uh-uh, you couldn't do that here. I mean, we were strictly business, and that was a place for everybody that wanted to help. So my place was on the picket line. We picketed every Monday through Friday at specific spots. My spot was in front of the Ocala Hotel, and we picketed right in front of the restaurant of the hotel every day, every day. And it was very hot, but we didn't care. We walked for hours in our little spaces. And the good thing about it for us is we knew that someone was always watching us. And they were referred to as observers. And we could not, no one could walk away from the picket line unless the observer, you know, nodded because we would get their attention and they knew we wanted something. And then we could go to them. The picket line never stopped moving until the observer said we were done. And then we would walk back to Covenant. But there was one day um, a situation occurred. There was a woman that came and parked right in front of the area where we were picking. And we had to do what we had to do. We had to keep moving. 
But the gentleman in, in front of me, when, when she began to bat to do her parallel parking, she bumped him and he, he fell on the floor, on the, on the uh, concrete sidewalk. So he was rolling back toward her, and so I stopped and got, I got down and just held him. And the, and the observer saw us, and I stayed on the ground. Everybody else had to keep walking around us, and they did, because like I said, you can't go out there if you're not trained. It's, that's just the rule. Mm -hmm. And she came and got the young man, and I had to keep moving. That's how serious it was. Now, remember that these are mostly high school and college students who are standing on sidewalks in their own hometown and declaring to passers-by that they should have their constitutional rights recognized. That's all they're doing. And these protocols and chains of command and protective organizations were all needed to make sure that they weren't seriously injured or even killed because of it. In the case of the observers, Ron Coleman described them as performing an organic extension of a role that these same women had always played in the community. Oh, yes, indeed. Yeah, I, I remember quite a few of them. Um, um, Mrs. Miriam Hampton was the wife of the local dentist, <clears throat> Dr. L. R. Hampton, Leroy Hampton. Uh, and she was one of several ladies, matriarchs, who would just take on that responsibility. Purposely, voluntarily, uh, and it was a, a collective of ladies who uh, took it upon themselves to, to, to serve in that capacity. And uh, we not literally took it for granted, but we didn't think of it as anything special. It was what they had been doing all of their lives. Except now, it was attached to something very significant, very special. This is related to the civil rights movement in Ocala. Um, but before I could get home in the old days, they, my parents would know exactly what was going on <laughs> long before I got to the house. Uh, and so they took it upon themselves to do this um, out of just pure servitude, just service. Just a good heart. Miriam Hampton, there were several ladies, I'll put it that way, who were who served in that capacity and did it uh, unselfishly for a long time. Although it might sound like there was a clearly gendered division of protective labor, men with guns, women acting as community mothers, Ann Pinkston recalled some details that blur that line a little bit. And there was quite a few men, and there was two ladies who were members. Oh, yeah? Yeah. They said they had the ladies so in the church they could have something handy in their pipes. <laughs> <laughs> Miriam Hampton and um, a lady that my oldest brother used to date, and they was Lucille. An observer and a friend with something handy in her purse, Mrs. Hampton was serious about protecting the community. It bears mention that white supremacists shot through a window of her and her husband's home in the summer of 1963. And although thankfully no one was hurt in that incident, she knew firsthand how serious the danger was. That might be part of why she made sure that she would be there to protect the youth in case anything happened during the movement. Others in the community were also very aware of these dangers, but their support was sometimes more spontaneous and unstructured. David Rackard described an example of this. 
And we had people who worked in the blacks who worked in the restaurants and stuff. We'd go in and sit down. They'd be in the back of your holding the knives up. We got you. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, 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 you know, it was funny, man. It was funny. Uh, they were saying just in case something happens. Yeah, we, 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 we back in now. The shooting at the Hamptons' house was not an isolated incident, and the people knew it. For instance, Pinckney Woodbury was also shot at three times that same summer when he became the first black O'Callan to run for city council in over 60 years. Many of the younger demonstrators involved in the movement had thought that Ocala was a place of relative racial harmony until, to call on the words of Reverend Ralph Abernathy, their modest demands of equality incurred immodest threats of violence, threats that were often directed toward women and children. Rosemary Alginatu Florence and Mary Carolyn Williams recalled some of those threats. Some people got phone calls, death threat phone calls. Oh, yeah. You can ask any number of people, death threat phone calls for any participation. Threats came in many forms. Ron Coleman described what it was like to be on the picket line at that time. Folks getting in your face, folks calling your names. I remember one instance of, there's a small scar. Yeah, it's right there, I can feel it. Where a staple went into my arm, one of those staples. Somebody shot a staple. So naturally I thought I was dying. I'm like, ah! I'm gone. I'm down. Man down. So that was a a trying experience, but a a good learning experience for me Mm. in that this is real. People are serious about keeping the races apart, as serious as we were about bringing them together. They were equally serious. And that staple in the arm was, was a testament to that. Some threats were very serious. The hunting and fishing club refused to let Ann Pinkston and the rest of her family sleep at their house when Ralph Abernathy spoke at Covenant. That was one night, the one night that we did not spend in our house during all the civil rights years. And that was because the threats were so very real. That particular night, they would not let us stay in our house. It was a daily thing to get threats every day. But at that particular time, it was just very, very real. And they just said, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't trust anything. So you had to suspect every call or every act was real. So, but that was just very real that night. One of the times when the church was so loaded with guns that... (laughs) (laughs) The hunting and fishing club's accomplishments are often shrouded in mystery today. Sometimes it may be to avoid dwelling on grim details, but it's also probably because most of the demonstrators did not understand what the club was until years later. Even within the black community, it was something of a public secret. Now, I don't know whether this was folklore from my generation or what, but we, it, the story was passed down, and I didn't hear it until I was much older. But they said that one night, a group of men came out uh, nearing the Pinkston property, and they were hollering and screaming and ah, yahoo, making noise and the truck. And they said when those they say when they got close enough, 
all they could hear was click, 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 and they got out of there. Tell me about it. Let me tell you this. Tell you this right here. Now, the lights and thing went up later on. We used to go out there in the dark. Brother Manchin, right here, we'd be in the woods in our foxhole and whatnot around here, our little safety jump. And uh, Brother Manchin, he could hear better than anybody in the world. I knew that. He said he got hearing aids now, but he didn't have hearing aids then. <laughs> and he'd tell me, he said, Elsie, oh, Elsie. He said, I hear him. You hear him out there? You hear him out there? So actually, they were tipping around, they were tipping around the woods trying to get to us and whatnot, you know? You remember that, my man? Yeah, I remember that. He could hear, hear the leaves, you know what I mean? Him walking around out there. We could, we could after he would, you know, we could help people walking around the woods and things. Mm -hmm. Am I lying? That's, that's true. Is that true? That's true. Tell them about it. But what we did, we had tin cans. Yeah. Mm -hmm. String them all down through the woods. We hit them with cans. But they string on wire. And if anybody walked in that area, we could hear them walk any, any given night. But they stayed out of the range, the range of those cans as much as, much as they could. But they were, they were really well spread. It, it, it really was something. Years after the movement, Ron Coleman's father described the near incident that the club was able to quell before anything happened. Did he ever tell you any stories later about being in the hunting and fishing club? Or? Sure did. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I can remember one specific one where they had a, a, a tip that somebody was going to attempt to do something, um, uh, attempt to, to get at one of the civil rights leaders in Marion County at that time. So they had a specific strategy to combat that. <laughs> And he told me they lined up um, in wherever they were with their cars hidden from view. And as this person approached their position, they had signals or something. I don't know how they did this, but all of a sudden, the night turned into day with bright lights. <laughs> and the quietness of the night turned into just chaos, a chaotic chorus of voices warning, you need to turn around and go back. And it was, <laughs> it was something that he was really, really proud of, the fact that they caught this person completely off guard and, and, and they were ready to, to protect this uh, civil rights leader to that extent. <laughs> something else. <laughs> We've heard several stories like that over the years. The structure of these stories and their lack of forensic details demonstrate the success of the Hunting and Fishing Club. The founders of the Hunting and Fishing Club are thankful for the way things worked out. Again, that was the whole point. The community's safety is what it was all about. We were really blessed not having any that's this whole fact incident. We're, we're, we're really blessed, I think, because of due to the training that we had, you know, uh, on our own, we had no trouble. Nobody got hurt. So we, we, we're really blessed. No, no lives lost. No, no lives lost. No incidents at the church. I mean, everybody no was, many of us were walking during that time, and there was never a problem. Mm -hmm. 
because the members of the hunting and fishing club stayed until everybody was either in their cars or out of their region. Yeah. So we proud about the way we went through with that. When Deacon Mention says Colfax incidents, he's referring to a Reconstruction era massacre in a town by that name in Louisiana. Marion County was known as a Ku Klux Klan stronghold and had a very active white citizens council. Moreover, the Klan was involved in violently repressing civil rights activity throughout Florida. Just to offer a few of the better known examples, we can look to the bombing that murdered Harry T. and Harriet Moore and Mims on Christmas Day 1951, the notorious Axe Handle Saturday in Jacksonville in 1960, and sustained violence in St. Augustine, particularly in 1963 and 1964. So the fact that Deacon Mention makes that reference to Colfax says a lot about how he perceived the danger at that time, and how aware he was of Florida's legacy of anti-black violence. With that awareness motivating them, the hunting and fishing club made the demonstrators and the Pinkston family feel safe during the movement. Remember, these demonstrators were young, some of them were minors, and some of them were realizing for the first time just how much hatred the white community bore toward the idea of racial equality. They'd seen white citizens turn into monsters, snarling out crude slurs and threatening violence in response to the idea that black Americans should be treated like American citizens. I really began to understand the impact of the hunting and fishing club not just in physically protecting people, but creating safe spaces, when Miss Mary Carolyn found out in an interview that one of her lifelong assumptions had been wrong. She thought that Mr. William James had been a member of the hunting and fishing club, in fact, that was why we went to interview him, and he told us that he was not. She responded by explaining why she had thought that he was. Mr. James, I always thought that you were a member of the Honey and Vision Club, and I'll tell you why. Because you would always be there. You were visible, and we all said hello to Mr. James, and I didn't even know until I was older exactly what the gentlemen were doing. But you were among the men that made sure that everybody got inside. You may not have been one of, you know, a, a member of that group, the protection arm of the movement, but I always thought you were because you were always there, and you were doing, some of them stayed outside, as you know, and they walked around and they came in and out. But they also made sure that everybody was safely inside and safely back to your car. And I saw you in that room. I looked at you, I would see the gentleman, you know, I didn't know exactly what it was, but realized, you know, as I matured. But I want to thank you for being there because it made me comfortable just like the other guys, seeing them around. So even though you weren't a member, you served the same purpose for people like me. And there were a lot of us who appreciated not having to worry about getting in and out of cover. So thank you. Sometimes, the most powerful aspect of oral history can be uncovering mistaken memories like this one. From the vantage point of the demonstrators, the hunting and fishing club consisted of people who were looking after them and made them feel safe, even when they didn't know how it was organized or realized that they were armed. 
so anyone who made them feel safe in that way might have been assumed to be involved, even if they actually weren't. Fred Pinkston and his sister Anne speak to similar themes, though they were more explicitly aware of what was going on, not only because they were adults during the movement, but because the hunting and fishing club kept guns at the Pinkston family home, and at times held 24-hour surveillance there. It was always comforting and reassuring to know that uh, there was, we could come home and sleep, and that there would, you know, there's somebody watching, nobody's just gonna come up there and attack. We could have been a statistic just like other families in, across the nation who encountered the same kind of problems that we did. And we were just very blessed that those men cared enough about us that they gave up home life. I mean, you think about they go to a job during the day and some in the night because some people work during the night and that kind of thing and so forth. So they, they gave up all of their time to come and make sure that we were protected, that we were okay. How much more can you ask a, a person to do for you? You know, that's an awful lot, an awful lot. I might give you some time, but goodness, I mean, that was day in and day out, and it was just went on and on and on and on and on. And not just in Ocala. Um, there was time my brother also pastored a church down in Altamont Springs. They went with him there. Wherever he went, they went. They never trusted him by himself because they just didn't want anything happening to him or us. So, I mean, you just can't put a price tag on that. It's just the most precious gift of them, so very unselfish of them. Just, um, I, I, it, it just still gets to you when you think about those men and the women who sacrificed like they did. I mean, whether it was hot, cold, rainy, didn't matter what the weather was or how bad the mosquitoes were. I mean, that was a lot, an awful lot. So I, those men will always be present in my thoughts and my heart, always. Something we try to illustrate through our Safe Spaces series is the concept that a safe space means more than just physical protection. It speaks, among other things, to a welcoming kind of inclusion, where people feel safe being and expressing themselves without fear of hatred or dismissal. Safe spaces aren't only about physical safety, but also about the kinds of spaces that people can create to more freely express themselves, and to create or harbor a sense of community that they might not be able to experience in wider society. And to that end, there are at least two important points that the story of the hunting and fishing club can drive home. First, it's important to understand the kinds of things that the black community in Ocala had to do just to enable an open discussion of freedom and equality. The people couldn't talk, even in a church, about the right to be equal without needing guns and lighting systems to ensure they wouldn't be attacked. So it was clearly about protecting physical safety, but in the process, it was about creating an environment where people felt safe enough to participate and express themselves. And as we heard before, the people doing the protecting had little to no interest in doing any protesting. They weren't using guns to promote their beliefs, 
but to make sure that other members of their community could discuss their beliefs and exercise their rights. Second, we're living in an era when the legacy of the hunting and fishing club is actively erased by popular misunderstandings of the civil rights movement and racial equality. During the civil rights era, sometimes, public figures spoke out about a willingness to use force in self-defense. Besides the famous example of Malcolm X, we might mention Robert F. Williams of Union County, North Carolina, or Robert Haling in St. Augustine here in Florida, but there are many others. It's telling that no matter how often these figures emphasized self-defense, much of white America somehow managed to hear threats of violence and aggression, and they still do. In consequence, black-armed defense often took the form of less publicized organizations, some of which carried official titles like the Tuscaloosa Defenders and the Birmingham Civil Rights Guards in Alabama, or the Deacons for Defense and Justice in Louisiana that later spread to Mississippi. And now you know about the Hunting and Fishing Club in Central Florida. Over 60 years ago, about half a dozen black men in Ocala successfully organized themselves to protect their community from white terrorist attacks. Today, membership in, visibility of, and somehow even the public acceptability of white supremacist organizations is on the rise, and relatively few Americans would even suspect that the Hunting and Fishing Club, or anything like it, ever existed. If that doesn't speak volumes about our current political situation, then I don't know what would. Thank you for listening to this episode of Safe Spaces. First and foremost, I'd like to thank all of the folks who took the time out of their schedules to do the interviews with us about the Ocala movement, and especially Miss Rosemary Algenatu Florence and Miss Mary Carolyn Calhoun Williams for helping us arrange and conduct those interviews. I'd like to thank my colleagues Justin Donovan, Justin Hosby, and Raja Rahim, who also did some of these interviews. Our digital humanities guru, Ms. Deborah Hendricks, who makes everything, literally everything, that we do at SPOP possible at all. And I'd like to thank the SPOP podcast working group team, and our Safe Spaces series producer and director, Aliyah Miranda. I'm Ryan Morini. Stay safe, defend your rights, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>